The Creatives with AI Podcast. Welcome to The Creatives with AI Podcast. I'm your host, David, and in today's episode, I chat with Andrew Maynard, scientist, author, and professor of advanced technology transitions at Arizona State University. In our conversation, we discuss how undergraduates actually feel about using AI, how everyone is now an art director, and we get a new entry into the vision of the future question using sci-fi references uh, from books by Ian M. Banks. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Andrew. The Creatives with AI Podcast, the spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, just for the listeners, I'm in the UK, so I'm in the late afternoon and you're in Arizona, so you're in the early morning. Yeah, well, eight o'clock in the morning, not too bad. It's not, it's not too bad. So yeah, there's a little bit of time difference going on here. How are you? How, how are things in Arizona? How's how's life these days? Oh, life is okay. I, life is hot here. We've had, I think, one of the hottest summers on record. Of course, life is always interesting in Arizona politically, but also I'm sitting here at um, Arizona. Arizona State University. This is a really interesting place to be. This is a university that goes faster than any other place I've worked, uh, which means that life is always interesting. And at the moment, it's interesting with artificial intelligence. My life seems to be AI from when I wake up to when I go to bed, which is all great. Sometimes exhausting, but all great. When you were younger, would you have predicted that you're, you would end up at this place <laughs> no. dealing with AI? No way. I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a nuclear engineer and that sort of went by the by but I did study physics but no I I had no idea I would I would I would end up in Arizona of all places studying artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. Well, that's a good question, I guess. I mean, obviously I've done the intro at, at, at the beginning mm-hmm. for everybody, but maybe if you just give us a couple of minutes on kind of how you got where you are and, and what you're doing at the minute, just to give us a little bit of context on the conversation. Yeah. So I started off really focused on physics, partially because I really enjoyed it, but also because it was the only thing I could do. I was lousy at everything else. Um, and I, Grew up in the UK, went to, to school and university in the UK, and the way I was taught just really jived with me around physics. But from there, I, I went into a career in occupational health. For many years, I was studying, um, researching and publishing on the dynamics of airborne particles. But the weird connection here was I did my PhD at the University of Cambridge on analyzing nanometer scale ambient atmospheric particles, which I was told at the time was a great piece of work, but absolutely nobody was interested because there was nothing of relevance whatsoever around nanoparticles. That was in the early 1990s. Um, So an interesting side bit to that was my external examiner for my PhD, who was the person that that told me that there was no future in this. Later, he became one of the UK's leading experts on ambient nanoparticles, which I thought was quite interesting. But anyway, we, we get to the end of the 1990s, and all of a sudden, nanotechnology hits the scene. And I'm one of the few people around that understands how to analyze these things in ambient settings. I've got a history of understanding the health and environmental impacts of particles. And this was just at a time when people were asking what could possibly go wrong with this technology. So that was quite an incredible segue into the the world of thinking through the responsible development of a very transformative technology. And it led to me working across agencies in the US government, eventually working with um, policymakers and stakeholders in civil society, as well as members of the public 
public and other places to try and understand what could possibly go wrong with nanotech and how we navigate that in a socially very complex environment. And I got the bug for, for doing that. I, it just intrigued me how we can weave together different ways of thinking and understanding to, to navigate a technology like that. And that was then the segue to beginning to explore a whole range of other emerging technologies and transformative technologies, of course, the latest of which is artificial intelligence. And at the risk of derailing this conversation in the very beginning, <laughs> I'm assuming that your research in ambient nano nanoparticles probably in the last few years became extremely relevant for some people. <laughs> so I, it, it's funny, I've been trying to distance myself from that for, for years, and, and including nanotechnology. I, I got a little tired of nanotechnology, but um, you go back to sort of between 2000, 2010, when we were really focused on what could be the potential human health impacts in particular of, of airborne nanoparticles. And yeah, my, my work was actually front and center there. And then of course, when we get to, to COVID with all the talk about airborne transmission, rather ironically, that work then again became important. But by that time I was out of the field and all of my work, not on only on aerosols, but also on filtration and control, was probably a little too old. Um, and you had other experts in the field, but it was it was interesting and amusing and occasionally rather frustrating to watch the conversations around what we do and don't do around airborne particles um, and realizing that pretty much everything we're talking about was stuff that people have been studying for the last 60 years. And yet people were reinventing the wheel. So, yes. Yeah, I could have really actually used you <laughs> a couple of years ago because when the, when the, and, and again, I digress a little bit, but just for a second, one of the, when COVID hit, one of the things I was doing is, is I ended up working on this project where we were creating temporary medical bays that could be installed into public city like buses. Yes. And one of the ideas that we had was if we could have, what, a, 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 like an ambient aerosol system that would run in the bus that would actually keep down the likelihood of transmitting anything. Mm -hmm. But there, like you said, there, there wasn't enough research that proved that that was possible, that it would work. So we ended up not doing it right? because we thought it could be really interesting, but then we'd have to go through and get some fun. And it was just like, we needed work, to get yes. something on the road, like right. ASAP. So we didn't have the time to do it, but Anyway, who knew who knew that we would end up talking about that? Because we've talked about AI the whole time. And, I know, and I know. Snuck in. Yes, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so we've been talking about AI, obviously, um, and and I was introduced to you through some friends in the UK. So what is it you're actually doing at the university now? Yeah. And you know how how are you now getting involved with AI? Sure. Well, I I have various roles here. The the big picture role is my focus on uh, what we're increasingly calling advanced technology transitions, which is pretty much how do we get from where we are at the moment to the future we want or the source of future we want in the face of a radically transformative emerging technology. And AI is obviously one of the big ones at the moment. Although I, I don't just deal with AI, I deal with, of course, nanotechnology, but also a lot of biological technologies, quantum technologies are coming up. But AI is the one that's really challenging us at the moment and, and presenting quite profound 
challenges as well as opportunities with how we navigate this transition to a better future. And a lot of that work involves bringing in expertise from very diverse areas. So one of the things we've discovered over the years is that there's a great danger in um, so-called technical experts or scientists deciding what the best thing to do is in terms of getting a, a technology sort of on the road. Because almost always they have a blinker perspective and they, they miss some of the unexpected risks or consequences. And the only way to get around that is to bring in a diversity of voices. Um, that includes activist groups and civil society, it includes the media, it actually includes the arts and humanities as well, because that's where some of the, the more profound insights are. So a lot of my work involves pulling together different threads and strands of thought, different people to explore how you actually navigate these, these transitions. There's an interesting side to that, though, which is a little bit self-indulgent. So I'm also the director of ASU's Future of Being Human initiative, where we, we sat down to do two things. First of all, we thought, wouldn't it be fun to ask the provocative question, what will it mean to be human as individuals in 100 years' time in the face of transformative technologies? But secondly, we asked, um, where are the intellectually stimulating conversations around this going on, and how can we build a a community where we have those conversations. And then the idea was to bring in interesting thinkers. We didn't care where they were coming from, what their background was, what their education level was. We were just interested in people with interesting ideas and thoughts. And that is one of the more stimulating things I do because that's a generator of insights and um, information and knowledge that I just can't get anywhere else. And of course, it ties into where we are with artificial intelligence at the moment. And what do you what are your biggest learnings from that that you've had so far? That things are complicated and amazing and incredible and sometimes very scary. And so uh, certainly with artificial intelligence, the, the conversations are, are telling us that this is a transformative point in human history where things are happening that mean it's almost impossible to predict where the future is going. But they also give us little glimpses of quite incredible things that we could do if we get things right, as well as little glimpses of how things could possibly go wrong. Um, so a lot of these conversations are in, very speculative, but some of the really interesting things that come out, questions around the transformative nature of AI in learning and education, even down to questions around is the current model of a university redundant or will it be redundant in the future? All the way through to, and, and this fascinates me, cognitive scientists beginning to doubt everything they've learned about the nature of cognition and consciousness and sense of self with what we're learning from artificial intelligence. So very few answers, but a lot of intriguing insights. It's interesting that you mentioned that because that's something that I've said a few times, which I've sort of seen is coming up as a, a as a thread through a lot of the discussions, you know, not, not only my own, but what I see online. But it almost feels like, you know, for, for thousands of years, I guess, you know, humans, if we've considered ourselves at, you know, very complex beings and at the top of the food chain and we're smarter than everything else and, mm -hmm. you know, nothing could could possibly ever, you know, approach what humans do. But actually, I think what we're finding out is, is that a simple algorithm, which it really is a fairly simple algorithm at the end right. of the day, does with enough computing power, does enough of a good job that it almost replicate, almost, but not quite, right. replicates a human. And I think there's, I think there's huge psychological and philosophical issues with that, that we're gonna have to address as a society. 
we're not as we're not as complex maybe as we think we are. Yeah, and I don't know what that's going to do to us over time. I, I'm I'm interested to see. To, to get your thoughts on that. No, and, and this is exactly why we have this Future Being Human initiative um, to, to ask questions like that. And, and I'm completely with you. There is this um, strand of human exceptionalism where we believe that we are somewhat unique and special. And we believe it so much, or at least so much of our identity is based on it, that we bend over backwards to try and justify it. And we're beginning to see cracks in that now with AI. And yes, current AI is still a set of algorithms, but we're beginning to see emergent properties and emergent behaviors that seem to question our basic assumptions about the nature of algorithms and compute. And and yes, one of the things coming out is that you scale the level of compute massively and you begin to see emergent properties that look remarkably similar to what we see in humans, which begins to raise the question, is what makes us special is our intelligence, our consciousness, our sense of self, our ability to think about the future and have hopes and desires, just an emergent property of massive compute. What, what's incredible, I guess, is how much compute power we actually have in our brain. Right, yes. That's the amazing <laughs> thing that I think nobody's really talked much about. Yeah, or, or, and the fact that, that it's different. So uh, I've been teaching this for years that, that our brains are not silicon computers. They're not digital computers. It's a, it's a completely different computing substrate. And yet we still do compute. Um, and clearly there are efficiencies to how the, the brain's architecture works that we don't see in digital computing. But then to me, the question is, can we either emulate that by massively scale digital computing? I think there are probably limitations there. Can we develop new computing architectures? And we're already beginning to play around around with that with components like memristors or can we just step way beyond that with an amalgam between quantum computing and digital computing to come up with something which either packs the punch of the human brain or transcends that well quantum is the next obvious choice isn't it i mean if you if you put ai on quantum uh, where it actually works in any meaningful way i think that's going to be quite Interesting and potentially frightening at the same time. I I agree. I yes, interesting and frightening depending on sort of what your perspective is and, and how much of a, a human sort of mindset you impose on on this technology. I'm sure the NSA is already working on it. <laughs> so I'd like to to move it a little bit into education because obviously you're doing some courses and things around AI, which which also was quite interesting. I thought yes. And I guess my question is is where how do you see AI sort of fitting into an educational landscape as as we move forward. Yeah. So this is a conversation that is ongoing with a lot of my colleagues and here at Arizona State University, we have a, a very clear focus on how we can leverage AI to scale and expand learning. Um, we actually have a very specific mission to make learning and education available to as many people as possible. And it's it's very clear that there is the potential in emerging breakthroughs in AI to accelerate that scaling. As a result, I, uh, both of my colleagues and myself, there's a lot of conversation around how we can begin to, to leverage emerging capabilities and fold them into not only how we teach, but how we actually think about learning and education. So to give an example of that, we're still stuck in the model where you have an instructor and a class. Um, even if you're looking at 
online education, you've still got the expert who's leading a group of um, 10, 50, 100 students. But what if you can use AI to scale the expertise and abilities of that instructor a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold? Um, what happens when each one of your students has a personal AI instructor that can tailor lessons exactly to them and you just have the, the human in the loop beginning to guide that at scale? That is entirely within our grasp now and that is a game changer. Yeah, I had a professor on from Cambridge and, and that was his approach to it as well. As, as he wasn't so concerned about the students using it from a cheating perspective. He was more interested in them having a personal instructor and a, and a personal tutor that could help them with their writing skills and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And I, you see this in quite profound ways. So one of the things that struck me just over the last year in beginning to work um, generative AI into the, the classes I teach is that if you have the one instructor to many students approach, you have to teach to the mean. You can't afford to tailor your teaching to the, the top 1% of the class because that leaves everybody behind. You can't afford to tailor it to the bottom 1% or 2% because, again, you're not serving everybody else. So you, you tailor it to the majority, which means that the tails of the distribution are at a huge disadvantage. So one of the things we can do with personalized learning, especially when you incorporate it into a classroom where you do have expertise, human expertise there, you can begin to extend it out to everybody. You no longer have to teach to the mean. So you can have both that personalized learning, but you can have the instructor or the educator beginning to guide that across many people. And I imagine it it helps massively students who have various learning disabilities it as does. well. So you can you can, depending on what, whatever issue that they suffer from individually, yep. we can now have a tool that can help them and they really get that specialist attention that they hadn't had before. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's hard to overemphasize that. And I'm already getting this sort of feedback from, from students. So I, I teach this very basic course in how to use ChatGPT, how to craft um, prompts for use in a professional environment. And the amount of feedback I've had from students along the lines of, I suffer from ADHD, or I, I have learning difficulties. I, I find it difficult to learn. And yet, using even just using chat gpt i can learn in my own way and my own pace even with things like um, i've had students where they've had an assignment and they haven't been able to work out what the assignment means so they plugged it into chat gpt and said i don't understand this help me and chat gpt actually takes them through a step-by-step -step tutorial so yes i'm seeing this opening up things massively um, and then you get into the, the realm of certainly neurodivergent students who learn in different ways. Um, we can craft learning environments that, that suit their needs. Students where, um, in my case, English is not their first language, this becomes transformative because now they've got a personal translator, not necessarily just translating the, the language, but translating the concepts into something that they can understand. Yeah, and that... that inline almost real-time translation stuff is quite interesting there's there's quite a few tools coming out now but and i look at it from the podcasting sort of aspect but i can take a podcast like this recording and we could actually translate this whole thing the video and the audio 
I mean, for everybody out there, we, we record the video. We just don't use it on, on the podcast, but we use it to create clips and things. But it will actually even modify the mouth shape so right. that it's correct for the words that you're saying and the language that you're saying it in. Yes. And I mean, it's amazing. And, and this is just early days with that. So you can imagine where that, you know, five or 10 years from now, where that's going to be. Yeah. You, you'll, as a professor, you'll be able to teach a class. You could teach a class to, to the entire world in their own language and it would do real time, you know, translation. And, and yeah, I mean, that's just amazing. That's science fiction stuff. It, it is. So I know I, for, for those people that remember, we're going back to Douglas Adams' Babelfish. I, I, so we are 100%. When he was writing this back in the 70s, this idea of putting something in your ear that would translate anything that came in was just stupendous science fiction. But actually, we're pretty much there now. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And just going, going back one second, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of my old teachers uh, because something that you said made me think of him. But I had a teacher in high school. So I, I went to a high school called Christian Brothers in, in Memphis, and it was one of the private school, all boys school, whatever. Mm-hmm. And we had a teacher there named Mr. Baker, and he taught English. And Mr. Baker was amazing because what he did is he actually tailored everybody's lesson plan to that particular student's interest. Mm-hmm. So... If you were an artist, he would have you draw a cartoon or do a piece of art around, we might be studying Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but you know, if, if somebody was interested in journalism, he would say, right, I want you to be a reporter and I want you to write a news article about this. And you know, if, if you liked poetry or if you liked music, he would be like, okay, I want you to write a piece of music that went with that. He must have put in so much time. Do you know what I mean? And when I, know, and when I was yes. in high school, I was, you know, 15, 16 years old. I didn't really appreciate the amount of effort that went into that. Yep. But he was the absolutely most loved teacher in the school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think everybody learned more in his class than than probably any other class. And uh, I mean, I'm making a, a wild assumption. But mm-hmm. what's interesting, though, is that Again, this whole potential for AI to be able to do that and for teachers to use AI to do those plans for those students. So a teacher may want to do it, but at the minute, like you said, you've got to teach to the mean. Yes. And so you you can't do all that customized stuff at the minute, whereas you will be able to now. So anyway, shout out to Mr. Baker if he if he ever listens. No, and I (laughs) you know, so many people I speak to have got similar stories that that one teacher and I think you're right, we never realized how much time and effort they put into things that we just thought I mean I remember remember my teachers like that we thought they were just a great teacher great instructor but that always comes with an intentionality to spend the time to serve your students right i do we we talked about this beforehand and i know you have uh and just for everybody out there you have a a newsletter that comes out Mm -hmm. regularly that touches on several different i think you probably have a couple different newsletters you've got all sorts of stuff so we'll, (laughs) we'll get into the details of all the things that you do later but the one thing that did catch my attention, I, I think it was a week or two ago, is you did a post and you talked about just informal conversations that you had with some of the undergraduates that were coming in. Mm-hmm. I think they were freshmen, they, maybe, uh, that were coming they, in. They were arranged. They were undergraduates, but I mean, they right. ranged from freshmen to uh, sort of uh, juniors. Yep. So can you, well, 
I'll let you sort of yeah. tell the story because I won't do it justice. But yeah, if you could share that, that I think that would be amazing. Sure. Yeah. So I, I, I do have this habit of, of talking to my students about what's going on. And one of the things that's been frustrating me around generative AI in education is the people doing the talking have largely been educators and administrators. We've heard very, very little from students. There's been an assumption of what the students are doing. And that assumption has been that all students are using ChatGPT or other generative AI, that um, quite a lot of them are using it inappropriately. I, we use the word plagiarism, but actually it's sort of broader than that. And that um, they are way ahead of the curve in terms of us as instructors. Therefore, we've got to A, catch up, and B, once we've got our act together, we can tell the students what they should be doing. So I thought, you know, somebody's got to speak to the students about this and find out what's going on. So I, I actually asked them. I know. So I, this was a fairly small group, but I um, I had this weekly class called um, The Movie Goes Guide to the Future, which is actually about cutting edge technology innovation and developing it in responsible ways. But we sit in class and we watch movies and we talk about them. But before I, I started class, I just asked them about ChatGPT and I asked them, well, how many of you actually use ChatGPT on a regular basis? And I was surprised to find only about a third of them did. And most of them were pretty ambivalent about it. Most of them said, well, you know, I've used it occasionally or sometimes it's useful if I sort of need to find out something or I I need to sort of check my work. Um, But then I sort of said, well, how many of you sort of use it to complete assignments, even if you're not supposed to? And I've got enough trust with this this group that I think they answered honestly. Um, Most of them said, we don't. There was was one guy, I've I've got to tell you, who sort of poked up and, and said, if you're not hacking the system, you're not trying hard enough, which I, I, I love. So his whole attitude is if there are shortcuts to find, it's part of sort of my mental workout to try and find them. And I, I love that type of student because it means that they're engaged and they're learning. But, but most of them actually weren't that into it. So I asked them why. And there are a couple of answers that came out that I thought were profoundly mature. I had a student who said, why would I use it? I came to university to learn. I don't want a machine to do my learning for me. This is what I'm paying for. That's the sort of attitude you obviously hope from students. And I was so pleased to actually hear it in the flesh. Um, And to me, it said that there's a really mature approach to emerging technologies here where the students will use them in ways that seem useful, but actually they won't substitute learning for that. But then I had another student um, say... My problem here is that the things I do, the things I write, the things I create are part of my identity. Why would I have a machine do the things that define who I am? And so those two attitudes really, to me, reflected a a very sophisticated approach to this technology. And they were a world away from this idea that all students are out there cheating using ChatGPT. Yeah, and it's, again, something we sort of mentioned is... I think people don't give students enough credit sometimes right. for for the you know for their attitude and their approach to education. Very much so. Yes. No. Um, I I find this all the time. My students have a range of abilities, but they're all smart and interesting, and sometimes have quite profound insights. I have a couple of questions. I'm just trying to think of what's the best way to go. <laughs> what what's what are the most exciting things that you see coming in relation to AI? Maybe not just limited to education, because I don't want I don't I don't want this conversation to just be about education. Obviously, you know, you work in education and higher education, so you know, you're everything's going to be sort of 
tame. I was going to say tame it, but maybe that's not the right word. Um, but but that's going to factor into all your answers anyway. But yeah, what what I guess maybe open it up a little bit more and just what are the most exciting uses and things that you can see for technology and and AI coming. Yeah. And, and I would say I, I, my work actually goes way beyond education. And it's somewhat ironic that I've ended up um, using ChatGPT in a lot of my teaching because it's typically not what I do. I usually ask really tough questions about where technology is going. I just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time in this case. But if you look more broadly, um, certainly starting with the near term, um, and this is going to sound a little bit like education, but there are advances in learning here. And I, I would make a distinction between formal education and um, where we, you sit in a class and you learn versus learning, which is largely self-directed. And one of the things that, that intrigues me talking to not only my students, but other people is this idea of what well, we call it lifelong learning, but it's, it's how you actually develop and evolve as a person by learning new stuff, having curiosity, satisfying that, that curiosity, developing new skills as you do that. And we're beginning to see AI as really quite a profound way of doing that and in sometimes unexpected ways. So we're now at a point where if you just want to know about something, you just out of curiosity, or you want to know how to do something, you've now got a platform that can help you. You go to a generative AI platform like ChatGPT, it can help you understand things in a way that is very hard to get elsewhere. But more than that, it can help you work through problem solving. And you can begin to see a progression here. So now if you either you've got something you need to do. You can't even work out how to sort of frame the problem. You've got a personal assistant where you can talk through the problem in a way that gives you opportunities and understandings of how to move forward. So it's a problem formulation platform, and then it's a, a problem co-solving platform because it doesn't just tell you what to do, but it actually has a conversation with you. So then that becomes very empowering for you as an individual when you're trying to either solve personal problems or you're trying to sort of find pathways forward in your life, it becomes powerful as well in, in a professional setting where as an organization, you're trying to solve problems and build value. You've now got an artificial intelligence system that can help you in that value creation process in a way that transcends what mere humans can do. And again, we're getting to this idea of human-machine partnerships as, as we do that. So this is all possible now. And as part of that, we're also beginning to see this, this ability to stimulate creativity. And this is one of the things that I found intensely interesting with how people engage with generative AI in particular. Of course, this goes way beyond generative AI. Um, but it's the way that conversations with something like ChatGPT switch on their creativity. Because if you're having a conversation, you have to understand what the next sentence is uh, or what the next question is in that conversation. You need to be thinking about what you've heard and what comes next. That means that you've got to engage critical thinking. You've got to think about sort of the flow there. It engages creativity because you're immediately thinking about where does this knowledge and information sort of take me next? And in this way, I actually think that we're beginning to see AI being a, a stimulator of creativity. And the, the really interesting thing here is you've switched from text to, say, images or video. There's been this deep concern 
around um, things like Midjourney and Dali, these these image creating platforms that basically they're dulling creativity because we're just letting machines do everything. My experience has been that when people engage with them, they are ex exercising their creativity because they are stimulated by what they see and it gets them thinking in different ways. So now it's almost like the AI equivalent of stimulants that we're shoving into our brain. They switch things on in ways that haven't been switched on before. This is all sort of fairly near term. The, the question is, where does this go next? And where's the evolution of artificial intelligence? And I can see a future, I, it could be six months, it could be six years, where we have these incredibly insightful personal assistants that, that know us, that know the world around us. They know when to push us and when to sort of spark ideas in us in a way where they become both a mentor and a sparring partner and a sounding board and a friend and a support, not as a substitute for other humans, but as something that just switches on our full capabilities individually as well as communities. I can't wait. Mm. Honestly, I can't wait. And I've had a couple of people recently send me links and, and I'll try and remember to put them in the show notes. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember to do this. But there are some tools now that are coming out that are your like your personal assistant. So they're yes. your personal AI that trains on all of your data and it can do that stuff for you. So yep. I totally can't wait. And hold that thought because we're going to come back to that at the end of the conversation. But one thing that jumped out at to me, Two, two things during the conversation that I'm, I made notes of. One is when you were talking about learning mm -hmm. and, you know, learning is not education. Learning is just something that you do all the time. But I got this, I subscribed to another newsletter and what they did is they, they do updates. They do technology updates, but they do it from a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So you can see the difference in where we are now versus where we actually were just a hundred years ago. Right. And in one of those, they talked about the fact that in the late 1800s is when houses, and I don't know if this was just the US or somewhere else, I don't remember where it was, so don't add me. But basically, they talked about the fact that houses started getting electric lighting. And the side effect of houses getting electric lighting was book sales went up by 800%. Yep. And libraries, the, the, the rate of people checking out books from the libraries went up enormously. I don't remember the stat, but it was like a thousand percent or something. Yes. And, and what it was, was people were trying to learn new stuff and they had the ability now to read when they really couldn't see well enough to read maybe before or whatever. So, you know, they were teaching themselves. So they, you know, people... The world's a totally different place now than it used to be. And I think right. most people, even I sort of forget that a lot of times, you know, and, and even a hundred years ago, you know, we're thinking people were just getting power mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what a transformative effect that had on society as people could now read at night yep. and, and they were learning stuff. And, and I just thought that was really interesting. And so I yep. love this thing and I hope it keeps it up. And cause I'd like to see almost even like a Twitter feed or something where it talks about, Hey, this was an announcement and you know, yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but as well, <laughs> 1923. It's, it's the unexpected consequences, which I, I find intriguing there. So I, I know I love that story of electricity being connected to something that you wouldn't expect it to be connected to, which is reading and learning. And you actually see that elsewhere. So there's, there are similar stories 
stories in the here and now where you have communities um, still in the world that don't have access to electric light, um, which means that when the sun goes down, unless they've got candles, which are precious, they can't learn. Um, and this is where having light brought into those, those places just utterly transforms things in ways that you wouldn't expect. Um, and you can see that time and time again with different technologies. It's it's not the technology itself. It's how people use it in ways that you weren't expecting and just blow you away. And it's all, I mean, it's the same with the stuff like YouTube. Right. Do you know what I mean? YouTube is, I mean, yeah, okay, there's a bunch of silly people putting up, you know, video games and all sorts of weird content. But at the same time, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours of educational content right. on there. Everything I know about sound editing, everything I know about <laughs> video editing, which probably isn't much. But, you know, if I want to learn about something, That's what there you are tons of people that, that can teach me. My son was in secondary school and, and when he was studying for his GCSEs in the UK, he was struggling with some of the math stuff mm -hmm. that he wanted to learn. Anyway, long story. I won't. I won't give any details because I, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. But, but let's say he was he was struggling with some of the concepts. So I said to him, "Look, go on YouTube, find ten different people that teach this concept, and see which one you get on with." And I said, "Because it's probably just the the teacher." And I said, "If you find somebody that you can understand and that explains it in a way that you get it, it doesn't matter." Just learn it. Mm -hmm. And if you find someone, so he was, he was able to go, he looked around, he found a, a teacher that he really liked and he engaged with and the guy, you know, and, and he was able to learn the stuff that he needed to learn. And he actually did really well on his exam in the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we never had that. You And, and I'll right. speak for you and I, because we're probably <laughs> of a similar age, actually. But we didn't have, you know, we didn't have that capability, that ability when we were young. And, and so that's just one example I think AI, this the, the whole thing of unintended consequences, like we're just playing around at the beginning. Yep. And and there's going to be positives and negatives, but you're absolutely right. Like the world of learning that this opens up and the and the possibilities that it opens up for people yep. who who maybe didn't think that they were creative before, but actually now but because they can't paint right. or they took a class and, and it looked a bit janky and they didn't like it. And so, you know, maybe their friends made fun of them because their dog didn't look like a dog or whatever. And they just kind of put the brush down or put the pencil down and didn't really do it again. Whereas now they have a tool that they can use and they can coach that tool. So the note that I wrote down while you were talking is art director. Mm -hmm. We all become art directors. Yep. Right. So now it's almost like we have a staff, right? So we can <laughs> we can take our creative ideas and we can say, hey, make something like this. And we can get that creativity out, even if we don't have the physical skill to draw the line. This this is we so can, true. We can use that. This is so true. And I, I it's actually interesting you say that. So uh, you mentioned my Substack, and there I use MidJourney um, to generate all the images. Um, but I don't do it blindly. Um, with every post I put up, I have a specific sort of purpose for the post, and I'm looking for an aesthetic to go with it. And MidJourney has turned me into a, a creative artist artist here. I'm the curator of what comes out. I decide what goes and what doesn't and how we tweak things. But I could never have done that six, 12 months ago. And it's fun. 
<laughs> yes, you mustn't forget that. We always forget to mention that actually I it's know. fun. Well, actually, so funny you should say that because this is one of the things I, I really push when it comes to science, but um, this really extends to what we're doing with technology innovation here. Um, one of the things that, that makes us who we are is our capacity for awe and wonder and delight. Um, and I think sometimes we downplay that. Sometimes we think that we shouldn't really talk about it because it's not serious enough. Actually, it is profoundly a part of who we are. And again, we see AI beginning to unlock that. Yeah, 100%. It's good. I love it. I'm glass half full about the whole thing. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, there's going to be issues, but it's broadly, it's going to be fine. Speaking of, I would be remiss if I didn't ask the question, you know, what are the, what are your biggest concerns? <laughs> yeah. So again, this is the irony. I, I have a split personality here because most of my professional career has been based around risk and asking what could possibly go wrong? What are the dangers here? Um, and it's a split personality because half of my brain, the physicist part thinks this is just so cool. This is just amazing. This is just incredible. And then the other half clicks in and says, yeah, well, what about? So yes, what could go wrong? Um, an awful lot is the answer. Um, and you've got the small stuff. Well, what I consider the small stuff, it's actually probably fairly big um, in terms of how AI is being trained, um, what it's learning from, what are the biases in that, although I think that that's a more nuanced conversation than people sometimes make it. But that extends all the way through to what happens if we relinquish control and autonomy of some fairly critical systems within society to machines. What is that going to mean for society? Are we going to erode the, the basically the connective tissue of society? Are we going to give away what is essentially part of us and humanity just out of convenience to, to machines. So that gets everywhere from looking at control of financial systems and decisions to um, control over uh, judicial and regulatory decisions, even in the future control of, of governance and, and how we actually run countries and, and the world. And I think there are some, I, these, when I talk about risks, I think there are some profound challenges um, here. They may not all be risks in the conventional sense. Um, and one of the ways that, that we begin to pass this out is talking about risk as a threat to things that are important to us. So you can actually ask the question, um, even at a personal level, what is profoundly important to you? I forget about things like sort of money and health. What is important to you beyond that? And quite a lot of times it's a sense of dignity, a sense of self, a sense of um, sense of importance, but also a, a sense of agency, being able to do the things that are important to you. What if AI begins to take those things away? What if it challenges your sense of who you are? How do you deal with that? And I think this is a very real possibility, especially as we begin to sort of edge towards AI that looks increasingly like a conscious sentient being, whether it's just emulated or not. Um, so that I think is a real risk. However, it's complex in that it isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, the bad thing is how it threatens what is important to us at the moment, but maybe that means we need to shift in our minds what is important to us and redefine actually what it means to be human. So a small question. 
Just a small question. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, I, you you can't have a conversation about risks without talking about existential risks with AI, uh, which I, I find intriguing. Actually, I, I don't think things are going to play out in any way that we expect them to play out. I do think that there are existential, existential risks in AI with AI or with AI-based systems, but I suspect that it's erosion of things in society that we don't think are important until they've been taken away and suddenly we realize that that was the, the linchpin that keeps everything together. I don't believe that we're going to have artificial intelligence that decides that it really can't stand humanity and decides to destroy us because that is just projecting our own insecurities onto AI. And I think AI will be different to humans. It's interesting you say that as well. I think that it's going to be this socioeconomic fallout of the changes that AI bring yep. that's actually, if, if there's any risk, it's going to be that. I think that that is... That's going to be quite a profound risk. I think it's going to shake up society. And this is why we talk about advanced technology transitions, because society is going to have to go through a transition and we're going to have to work out how to restructure. I would say that there is there is another thing that's, that worries me, and I don't know how you pass this out in terms of a risk or a benefit, but that is the mastery of current generative AI over language. And I, I this is sort of how my reasoning goes. And I, I, some people, other people have explored this and others have, have counted it. But if you think about how you make sense of the world, as soon as you learn a language, your understanding of the world around you, your internal model of the world is built around language. Most of us talk to ourselves internally. We've got that internal monologue. The way we... Um, create our place in the world with other people is through language. We learn about other people through language. We express ourselves through language. So language is a critical part of the connective tissue of society. It's what actually makes society work. What happens when you have machines that have a greater mastery over language than us as humans? Are they somehow going to erode away that, that connective tissue? Are they going to modulate it? Are they going to co-opt it and hijack it in ways that give them the ability to mold society? I have no idea where that goes, but that is one of the things that keeps me awake at night. It's a great question and it's a great point. Did you... I don't know if you've had a chance to listen, and I'm going to do a shameless plug for one of my previous podcasts, uh, but I had Yoop Mindersma from, he's the founder of Pause AI, mm -hmm. and we did a whole episode where he came on and, and he has a very strong sense of existential, the possibility of existential risk. I want to make sure and, and, and get that right. He doesn't necessarily think that the world is going to end, but he thinks there's a huge possibility that it could mm. if we don't do something now. So, Yoop, if I didn't get it right, don't at me. I'm saying that a lot today. Um, but it might be interesting if that's if that's something that you're interested in. It might be interesting if you haven't listened to that one. Maybe maybe take a little time because Yoop's he's 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 very he's thought about it a lot, mm -hmm. and he's you know he's very well considered. So, it might be something you know just to reference if you if you haven't listened it's, to it. It's on my um, list now. Yes, yeah. But I, I awesome. think there are some really important questions like this. Um, and again, this is such a disruptive technology. I, like many people, I talk about this being a pivot point in human history, unlike anything that we've experienced before, which means that there are going to be major challenges in how we navigate it. And those are as much um, recalibrating who we are and what it means to be human and have the society we want as it is about how we actually develop and use the technology. Right. I'm conscious of time. 
So we're, we're starting to get on a little bit. So that means I, I need, that's more for me than for you. A couple of questions. And then I, I have my sort of standard questions I'll ask you at the end, but just going back a little bit to, to education. And again, we can expand this out a little bit if you want to. Um, I'm quite happy with that, but sort of what's your vision for what education will be like in a world where, you know, AI is everywhere. Yeah. I have ubiquitous written down, but that's, that sounds quite, <laughs> right. it's not what I would normally say. So, But, but, I, but, but I think um, it's right. I think we're, we're already almost in a world where AI is ubiquitous and I think it's going to get even more so. And now I'm beginning to wonder whether you can have more ubiquitous. I don't think you can. Um, <laughs> we're back to language. <laughs> we are. Yes. But I, so my, my vision is, first of all, thinking about what the purpose of learning is. Let's start from first principles. What does it mean to us as individuals? What does it mean to us as being human? What does it mean to us as building a thriving society? Um, because if we don't start from what the, the value and the purpose of learning is, it's, it's very, very hard to work out how we begin to incorporate a, a transformative technology like AI. And if you start from the premise that, that learning is about um, our personal development um, satisfying our curiosity, helping us build a sort of agency and a sense of purpose and a sense of self-identity in the world and, ability, and an ability to work with others to, to create value within the world. You've then got a whole series of tools that will empower learning. Um, I would still argue that there's a, a strong place for, for humans, instructors, educators in that, um, but in a very diverse way. And simply because we are humans, so at some point it's useful to learn from other humans about how we actually sort of develop ourselves and, and create value. But at the same time, if you think about that purpose of learning in order to sort of satisfy our curiosity, create value, sort of develop ourselves, there is incredible potential for AI to be a part of that and to unlock our full potential. So this then comes to my vision where we develop and use AI in ways that enable us to unlock our potential our full potential as individuals and as society. But starting with what we're trying to achieve, what we're trying to grow, what our visions of the future are, and then how we use these, these machines, both as tools and I would say as partners to begin to create that vision. Love it. That's great. Right. What's the coolest thing you've done with AI so far? <laughs> That's, yeah, I'm not sure actually because I always feel that everybody else is doing way cooler stuff. I would say I, at a very simple level, I'm going back to this idea of, of image creation um, and I, I'm a novice at this, but I love the fact that I can use generative AI to express how I'm thinking and feeling inside, usually through abstract images. Um, but it's a way of beginning to sort of capture what's going on in my head in a way that you can't just do through words. So I, I actually get quite excited about that. Um, the other thing I would say is I'm really interested in this idea of um, AI reasoning or generative AI reasoning. And of course, I mean, there's a lot of conversation at the moment around whether something like ChatGPT really can reason. It almost definitely can't, um, but what it means when it seems to be reasoning. So using sort of what we're calling chain of thought prompts, where you get um, uh, generative AI not only to give you an answer, but to actually sort of talk you through 
why it's giving you that answer, what it's thinking, and demonstrating that it has some internal sense of the world and how the world operates. Um, I've been playing around with that quite a bit, and I find it utterly fascinating and utterly compelling that we have machines that can think seemingly, even though they're simulating thinking, but they can simulate thinking more coherently than most of the humans that I talk to. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that kind of relates to something I say a lot, which is, you know, it's sort of AI at the minute is is like an average person, mm -hmm. sort of. And it's it's maybe slightly better at most individual tasks than the average person, but it's not better at any task than a professional. If that makes any sense. So if yes. you're a if you're a professional copywriter, right. it's not better than you. But if if you're an average person who needs to write some web copy, yes. it's probably going to do a better job than than you would do on your own. Yeah, and I'm going to say something dreadful here and say I think most people are below average, which I know doesn't make sense. But actually, I I find that the when you're looking at expertise, yes, I mean if. Um, Generative AI can't reach the, the expertise of, of trained people in, in many cases. But I would actually say most people don't aspire to that level of expertise in most cases. Yeah, 100%. And that's, and that's a, in my mind, that's not necessarily a bad thing, mm. right? Because it gives people the ability to to be a little bit better than they would be normally. And I think that's part of the attraction to it. That, that's right. It's, you know, it, and even for me, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll put something that I write in, maybe it's a professional document or something. I'll write the first draft, but then I'll put it in to say, suggest or rewrite this or help me edit this or make yep. it more concise. And it comes back with something. It's still what I said in the beginning, but it's reordered it and used better words than I would do. So yep. Yep. I, I find it really useful for that. I, I would also say I, I'm speaking to more and more professionals these days who are saying that their life has changed by using generative AI. Um, and there's a certain level of professional humility here. So I actually find the people who are dismissive, the people who have the arrogance to believe that they're better than a machine so they don't even need to sort of try it out, the people who are really excelling, uh, some of the biggest experts in the field that I work with um, who have the humility to say this technology extends and transforms what I'm capable of. And it almost seems like the smarter you are, the more expert you are, the better you are at being able to leveraging it, leveraging, uh, leverage the technology to really expand what you're capable of. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right for now. And I think a lot of people are just getting used to it and figuring it out as well. Right. So yep. Yep. right. So next question. What's your future AI vision? And if you've listened to any of my other podcasts, you'll know where I'm going with this. So we have sort of three options. We have Star Trek, which is the, you know, that's the that's the perfect, you know, sort of utopian view. Yep. We have the Mad Max version, mm -hmm. which is, you know, society has completely collapsed and and who knows, you know, that that's sort of the 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 fully, you know, sort of dystopian view. And then you have that bit in the middle which is kind of cyberpunk blade runner-ish kind of thing where you know you've got you know, they they have a similar type feel right. so i'm just curious where you think we might end up in the next i don't know 100 years or something can i have a fourth option oh please yes <laughs> give me a fourth one so actually it aligns somewhat with the the, the star trek vision um but the the vision that I would love to see evolve, and it's probably sort of more at the thousand year range than hundred year range, is something akin to Ian e M. Banks' culture series of novels. 
So okay. he, he has uh, a vision of a future with stupendously powerful artificial intelligence. Um, but it's an AI or type of AI that, that lives in complete harmony with humans. You've got this, this symbiosis and this respect between humans and machines um, that I actually think is quite compelling. Um, and it works because the machines are so powerful that um, they're not competing with humans in any way. And yet they see something special in humans that makes them valuable to them. And same with the humans. They, they're not competing with the machines, but the something valuable both not only in their abilities but also the relationships they have with them so now you have this this integrated cooperative environment with very very powerful artificial intelligence working and living in harmony with humanity i like it that's good so you've given me a new option somebody <laughs> mentioned I, i'm not sure if this one's gone it may be the one that, that went out today but he mentioned she so there's a whole other yes. set of options where it's kind of, you know, AI Goes off and does maybe anything. combined yeah. with robotics and that kind of thing, you know, sort of lives in there. And then there's also the Dune, mm. I think, example as well. So the Frank Herbert view, which is, you know, they had a, an AI war, basically, and yeah. decided that computers couldn't be smart. They could only be dumb. Right. And so, you know, the, the, there was a huge incident. And then it's become, you know, sort of galactically, um, um, they just agreed no more computers. So right. I have a massive list now, <laughs> which which makes that question quite a lot more complicated. But yes. um, but there we go. Okay, so that's cool. I like that. E&M Banks. And I'd, I'd forgot about E&M Banks. I had, I'd never heard of E&M Banks until I moved to the UK, actually. Yeah. And um, I actually got quite into reading a lot of his stuff and his E&M Banks stuff also. Of course, which yes, he, yes. He has the two different. Novels, yes. Th- yeah, the, the the two different things, but anyway, sorry, that's that's a bit um, that's a bit UK centric for most people, right? So next question is AI male or female? Neither. <laughs> <laughs> I well, so it's interesting to see what happens if and when AI reaches self awareness, um, but at this stage, I I would say I don't think gender is of well, actually, I've got to be careful here. I would say I don't think gender is of relevance, but of course, depending on how you train an AI, it's going to have tendencies. But I think that we need to go beyond gender identification with AI. I guess I'm asking, do you hear it with a female voice or a male voice? <laughs> so you were asking a much more basic question, and I went off onto the, the sort of really... No, 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 it's fine. Stuff. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Actually... That's a really good question. I don't know. I, so I will tell you, it has disturbed me for many years that um, we have a tendency to use female voices with things like Siri and Alexa, because I think it's, it plays to gender stereotypes. But when I, yes, I had never even thought about that before, because I tend to sort of work in the world of, of text and you know, you've got me thinking now, but when I work with ChatGPT, obviously I'm reading it and there's a sort of internal voice. I think it's a gender neutral voice, actually. I can't put a gender to it. Okay. Interesting. No, that's you. And you're not the only person that said mm-hmm. that either. I'm just, it's turned into now a point of interest for me because I'm yes. trying to figure out if there's any sort of, like, it's totally unscientific, right? But everywhere I go, I always ask people. And yeah. um, it generally, it, at the minute, it seems that most people tend to view AI as female mm-hmm. or at least having a female kind of representation. And I think that comes a lot from sci-fi yeah 
So sci-fi, most of the computers in sci-fi have a female voice, except for the evil ones, which are male. Right. So you've got Terminator 2001, like the, the AIs that kill people are male. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a, a very interesting representation of that. So I it think is. that partly skews our our results. So anyway, it's interesting. It's ongoing. Yeah. I might actually try and formalize it and, and get some actual data at some point. But last question is, so when you have an AI assistant, what were you going to name it? <laughs> um, I do not know. What an interesting question. I should come up with something. Actually, it plays into the the, the last question because obviously most names are gendered and I'm desperately trying to think of an ungendered name. I don't know. I do not know. Can I pass on that one? Pat. You're going to name it. Pat. No, I was going to say pass, but that's right. But Pat actually works. Yes. Okay. From now on, my yeah. personal AI yeah. is going to be Pat. It's going to be Pat. I've um I've joked before that that I have uh, I always end up naming stuff technology Jeff for some reason. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why. I just think it's hilarious if somebody says you know even if it's a program that we use in the office, it's like has anybody asked Jeff? Right. Um, so I, I keep saying that I'm going to have to name mine Jeff simply because of that. Right. So, so there we go. And I've just thought of an extra one that I've never asked anyone before, but now you're the lucky one. What voice would you give it? So because you can, obviously you can make it sound like you, like anything you want. Do you have, yes. like, do you have a celebrity voice or a, a computer voice or something in mind that you might make it sound like? So I, I don't have a celebrity voice, but that's just one of my quirks where I, I, I tend not to sort of latch on to individuals, but I, I definitely have a voice profile, which again would be not particularly gendered, but erring, erring towards the female, but slightly lower register, smooth, calming, engaged. You're going to say Margaret Thatcher, aren't you? No. <laughs> not that we want to get political here, but no. It's not political. The only re- <laughs> Everybody's going to misinterpret this, so I've got to explain. The only reason I said that is because my, my wife studied linguistics at university, and she always the, talks the about the, the fact voice, that Margaret yes. Thatcher, yeah. yeah, she intentionally trained her voice to be lower. Yes. Because she got more respect from people with the with yes. the, with a slightly lower voice, so that's that's the reason I, I, I said that. I know exactly where you were coming with from politics. with that. Yes. So actually, if you want an, an example, if you look at the the movie AI Artificial Intelligence, right at the end of it, you've got the the, the aliens come in. the The pitch and the tone of their voices is probably spoiler to where alert. We go. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not Margaret Thatcher. Though. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And have have. I know you do the film thing, and I'm almost sure that you've sent out something about this already, but the creator, the new uh, film yes, that's out, no, did you send something out about I that did. recently? I did. I actually saw it on Wednesday and, and posted yesterday about it. Yeah, well worth seeing. It's it's a flawed film, but it's it's definitely worth watching. I'm, I'm going tomorrow night. Um, to see it with the family, so yep. I will report back afterwards. Good, uh, good. I hope you enjoy it. But it looks it. good. It's 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 infinitely better than the trailer. The, the trailer actually gives you a, a misrepresentation of, of what the movie is really about. 
Excellent. Okay. Thank you very much for all your time today. Um, would you like to go through and sort of give everybody a, a, a bit of information about, I know you've got tons of stuff and I will put it all in the notes. So, yeah. but if you'd like to highlight, if you've got. Yeah. So the big thing is the, the Substack that I, I write for where um, I have stuff coming out regularly each week, which is simply andrewmaynard.substack.com. Um, I would love people to check it out. Also, I've got my personal website, which is andrewmaynard.net. But on there, I've published a couple of, of books that really explore this intersection between technology and being human and the future. Um, the first of those is Films from the Future, which was really badly marketed because it looks like it's just a book about sci-fi movies. It's actually about cutting-edge technology and how we actually navigate the, the, the moral and ethical complexities of getting it right. Um, but it's also about 12 science fiction movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, I, I, it's the best of both. I, best of both. Um, and then briefly, the, the other one I would mention is my uh, my other book, Future Rising, which is a series of 60 really short essays that, that together try and explore this idea of what the future is and what our relationship to it is. So I, that's, that's the book that I... I think I like the most. Um, it's a bit of an oddity because the, these essays are so small and they cover such a wide range of topics. But when you take it together, it captures how I begin to think about the complexity and the nuances of our relationship with the future. As, as one of my other guests talked about hit one of his books and he said, it's like the CEO, it's the executive airport book mm-hmm. because you can sit down and you can read something quite short right in between a flight or as you're sitting and waiting and then you can get through the whole thing and then you can put it down and then read the next bit. So, yep. and where, where can people buy that? Anywhere books are sold. Um, Amazon is the obvious place, but, but many places stop them. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time today. It's been amazing chat. This has been great. Thank you. Bye. The Creatives with AI Podcast. The spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future.